Hello, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors here at Newbridge and so glad to have you joining us online. You're welcome here. Uh, I hope that this sermon is helpful and is encouraging to you no matter what's going on in life or no matter where you're at in your spiritual journey. Uh, for now, enjoy this sermon. Again, hope that it's helpful and I hope to have the opportunity to meet you in person. Good morning. I want to just welcome every one of you who's here, any of you who are joining us online. Um, just have been reminded lately of uh, what God is doing among us, and, um, and that's come from some of you who have reached out and just let us know, our staff, our leadership, know what's going on, how we can be praying for you, and just want to thank you for being courageous, for being humble enough to... Uh, whether that's show up, um, whether that's to write that email that says, here's what's going on in my life, and I want you to know, and I want to invite you to be praying and, and help out. Um, but we're so grateful and reminded that this is so much more than a service we go through, a few songs we sing, a sermon, and then wrap up and go, but that this is a gathering of God's people and those seeking God and just saying, Lord, we, we need more of you. We need you to speak to us, to intervene in our lives. And he uses this time and he uses you as you're here. Even if you're the one who says, I'm here and I'm the one seeking, I'm the one lost, I'm the one confused, like you're a part and we're glad that you're here. Um, and for those of you who are faithfully here regularly, you're a part of this family, and you, you play a big role in, in being here and gathering. So thank you, and just really grateful for this uh, time. Um, this is our first Sunday of Lent, and um, for us, Lent is a season where we are intentionally saying, Lord, we want you to, to make us more aware of the habits, the patterns, the practices, the stuff in our life. Some of it that's flat out wrong, and it's just, it's sinful and needs to go. Some of it isn't bad in and of itself, but the role, the place that it has in our lives is wrong, and it, and it needs to change, and it keeps us from relying on Jesus, from drawing strength from him, life from him, and instead it, it, it substitutes or it tries to as a distraction or as a source of strength. Uh, whatever it might be. And so we're saying, Lord, we want to be aware of those things and we want to remove them from our lives and ask that you would intentionally use this time to, to shape our hearts and to draw us closer to you. So we've got the theme of strength through surrender. And that's acknowledging that as we surrender things that feels like a, a weak move on our part, it's drawing from the strength of Jesus. So we invite you into this season of Lent with us. If you haven't started yet, um, outside in the, in the lobby area by uh, the connection wall, you'll, you'll find some of these cards that, that Tricia um, put together along with Sean and Ali Waco, the design. But the content here uh, is all Tricia and super, super helpful. want to invite you. They're a, they're a suggested donation of $10. If that would keep you from getting one, we don't want that to keep you. So, so grab um, a set and join in. You can also follow each day on social media. Um, we have somebody different reading the cards each day, and so you can listen and reflect on them as well, but really want to have you be a part. Um, I want to remind those of you who uh, know the Hall family that today is LaVon Hall's memorial at one o'clock. 
right here. And so I want to invite you to come back and to honor her and support um, the Hall family, Dick uh, especially. So uh, come on back for that. Um, I am super excited to have uh, Trisha bringing the word this morning. She is, for those of you who don't know her, she's uh, our director of Next Gen Ministries, uh, provides oversight uh, and leadership to all of those ministries and the people involved in them. Uh, not only that, she's involved in a lot of our spiritual formation work around here with Advent, Lent, our, our monthly spiritual practices, memory verses, provides a lot of other leadership with, with staff, and uh, is just a huge blessing. Um, often is challenging us with, uh, with different insights from stuff she's reading and, and learning herself as she's trudging through seminary. And so we're just grateful to have you, believe in you, uh, stand by you, and thank you. So would you please give a warm welcome to Trisha. <sighs> well, welcome. So happy you guys are here. I, uh, I told John, um, I think that I should uh, preach on a holiday weekend so less people will be there. Uh, but here you all are. So I just want to say, like, if this is um, your first time at Newbridge or at church or even joining us online, um, truly believe that no one belongs here more than you. So welcome this morning. Welcome to Newbridge. Um, you guys, I'm just going to let you know that uh, 2024 is now 10% behind us. Like, if you can believe it, we are in the third week of February, and so we still have 90% ahead, lots to look forward to. But at the beginning of this year, I was thinking about, okay, 2024, what, you know, what's going to take place? And I'm thinking, I have three kids, I'm thinking how old they're going to be, and um, it's going to be my 26th wedding anniversary, and I'm only 29, so I don't quite know how that works. But, but then I realized, it just kind of hit me, that this marks 30 years of walking with Jesus. And I was like, what? Three decades to look back and see the goodness of God in my life. And um, it just was a moment. And I just recognized, like, I'm not the same person today that I was then. Like, I didn't know then what I know now. I was just 20 years old, and I was uh, attending South Puget Sound. I was working at this cute little flower shop, and I was just trying to figure out what to do with my one wild and precious life. Like, what to do? And as some of you may know, I grew up in the South. I grew up in Texas, and the community that I was a part of was um, particularly fond of good. Look good, be good, do good. And so I was raised to be a good girl, to be lovely, to have manners, um, to do the right thing. And then as a teenager, I moved here to Washington, and not that y'all aren't lovely, uh, but it was a bit of a culture shock. And, uh, but I still just tried to figure out what does that look like in this new context of like doing the right thing, treating people well, you know, being lovely. And uh, in 1994, um, I met a young man, and he 
uh, and his friends and me and my friends, we would hang out a lot together, get to know each other, go to dinner, go to the park, whatever. And sometime that summer, um, we all decided that we were going to go to the zoo. We were going to go to the zoo on a Sunday afternoon, and two of these young men and his friend group said, oh, you know what, Trisha, you should come to church with us. You should come to church with us, and then we'll all go to the zoo together. And I was like, well, I've never been to church in Washington, but it can't be a bad idea, so that sounds fun. And so Sunday morning, I get up, I get ready, I drive myself to this uh, cute little church. I will not name it. And, uh, and I walk in to look for my friends. And I don't know if I can convey to you the level of scandal that I brought to that sweet congregation. So I walk into the lobby, and everybody's kind of, you know, hanging out as they do. Um, but all of the men were wearing collared shirts and khakis, and many of them in suits. And I'm looking at all these beautiful ladies, and they're all wearing very lovely dresses, like below the knee. And I see a group of young adult women, um, just a few years older than me, and simultaneously, just like in the movies, they all stop talking and turn. Because <laughs> here I am, in my tank top, in my jean shorts, in my kids, with my sunglasses pushed up on the back of my head because I had dressed for the zoo. And I'm looking for my friends because I recognize, like, oh, okay. <laughs> and it didn't take them long. It felt like 10 hours. It was probably only 10 seconds because all they had to do was follow all of the stairs. And I was like, hi, it's me. I'm the problem. It's me. <laughs> And uh, I think they quickly recognized the error in their invitation. Dress code. Keyword, dress. They had forgot to mention some minor details about this cultural context I was invited into. But I'm sure I'm not the only one. I'm sure that there have been times in your life um, that you maybe unintentionally caused a little drama or brought a little scandal. And uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning as we dive into John chapter 4. So if you were here last week, uh, John the Baptist was assuring his disciples that Jesus is the real deal. He must increase I must decrease. He is setting out in his public ministry. This is what my life was to prepare for. And so, guys, this is a good thing. And the momentum shifted from John the Baptist to Jesus. And everyone was aware of it. They were talking about it, including the Pharisees, including these religious leaders that were kind of going like, hey, what's going on? What's happening here? And so they took notice, and Jesus is like, and that is my cue. I'm out. And so he makes his way to um, Galilee. He leaves Judea and heads to Galilee, and that is where we are going to pick up this morning. We're going to start in John 4, uh, verse 4, and the mission that Jesus sets out on. He had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. He had 
to travel through Samaria. Another way to read that is it was necessary for him, or he was compelled to travel through Samaria. He was compelled to go to Sychar, specifically to Jacob's well. Why? What compelled Jesus? Everyone else went around. They weren't going through Samaria. They were going around to get to Galilee. He was compelled to go through. He was compelled to go to a well. And I would just suggest that there are two things that compel Jesus. The love of humanity and obedience to his Father. So what we're going to see today is Jesus sets out on a rescue mission of love with orders from the Father. He was tired. He was worn out. He just wanted to sit down. And so he did. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, would ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him. For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. To say that Jews did not associate with Samaritans is an understatement. They refer to them as half-breeds, as dogs, pagans. They were unworthy. They were unclean. They kept their distance. That's why they went around. And a little backstory here. So Samaria, in the time of the kings, served as the capital of the kingdom of Israel. And when Israel was taken captive by the Assyrians, one of the strategies of conquering nations was to exile or relocate a majority of the people that lived there to other places. And then they relocated foreigners into the land. And so Samaria had a few Jews that were left, but lots of other people relocated. And these Jews intermarried with race and religion during that time. And so they were rejected. They were no longer a part of this pure Jewish race, God's chosen people. They were half-breeds, and they were unclean. And generations of Jews perpetuated the bitterness and the bias against them until Jesus. He's like, I'm not going to stand in agreement with hate against these people. And so he goes there. In fact, the conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman is the longest recorded conversations you will read in the Gospels. He goes to her. And so often, and maybe like you, when I've heard teaching on this passage, it's depicted as Jesus and the scandalous woman of Samaria. But if I understand how John writes this story, and if I understand the first century that it took place in, then I would say the scandal of this story is not with the woman. The scandal is that Jesus would go and break down all of the barriers of the culture in the context that he was in. It's about 
um, him making a way to have a conversation with her. He's a man. She's a woman. He's Jewish. She's Samaritan. For her to even speak to her is a disgrace for him. But for him to actually drink from her cup would make him unclean. He would need to go through the ceremonial washing, purification, just to be able to take some of the food that the disciples brought back. And yet here he is. He's asking her for a drink. And we also note that she was by herself, an unusual time of the day to go to the well. So either she has been rejected or she's embarrassed and has shame and she is isolating herself. Either way, she is a societal outcast. And so here's Jesus, a Jewish rabbi held in high regard, compelled by love and obedience to come against everything that humanity at that time held sacred and engage with someone of the wrong gender, of the wrong race, the wrong religion, and the wrong position in society. So it's no wonder that she's a little shocked. Wait, you're a Jew, and you're asking me for a drink of water. I think she was probably a little nervous. This was highly unusual and very culturally inappropriate. But if we've read the biographies of Jesus, the Gospels, then I think we can agree that Jesus is rarely culturally appropriate. He did not conform to the cultural and religious moment that he was living in. He made things messy in the best possible way. He praised the Good Samaritan, and he touched lepers. He rebuked the religious, self-righteous leaders and elevated women and children. He would not conform to the patterns of this world. He was unwilling to be managed by the rules of his society, to, to bow down to religious rules, to the world, to fearful people-pleasers. It was his father's will that he would do, and not the will of those who didn't understand his love for humanity in his obedience to the Father. And I think in that moment, he put the powers and the principalities, the rulers of this earthly kingdom on notice. This was early on in his ministry, and he's saying, hey, my kingdom culture is here, and it is going to spread throughout the earth for generations. And today, it's going to spread throughout Samaria. So I just want to pause here for a moment because I think it's important we recognize what Jesus is doing at the well. He goes first and he makes a way. He shows us a way in which we should walk out our following of him. He demolishes the lofty opinions raised up against the heart of God. He destroys every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. A little paraphrasing of 2 Corinthians 10. 
He's making a way for all people by dismantling the human constructs of traditional and religious and societal and racial and gender barriers. And he says to his disciples, and he says to us, all the disciples that come after, follow me. This is the way of the Father. So the boundary lines that are set by fear, by control and hatred, he erases them. He knew his disciples would need freedom. They would need to be free from all of the expectations and rules and regulations put on them in that moment. He needed them to be free to be kingdom ministers that were going to bring heaven to earth, love into places of fear, life into places of death. And so he shows them there are no boundaries for the love of God. And he walks right over every obstacle and clears the path for them and for us. And so I would just say the love of Jesus compelled him to cross all the lines. May the love of Christ compel us to do the same. 2 Corinthians 5, uh, starting in verse 14 and then picking up in 19, it says, For Christ's love compels us. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. So just a question for reflection this morning. What barriers or bias prevent me from loving others as Jesus loved this woman? Who are the people that are off-limits? We go around. The off-limits for me, for you. The Samaritan woman, she had a need an empty water jug, and she brought her need to Jacob's well to get filled every single day. And when we look at her, we can see the physical need. She came to get water. But we can also see the spiritual need because she was alone at an unusual time of the day. And we read later in the story that, true enough, she has experienced loss, in rejection, and disappointment. And so as Jesus is at the well, there are two empty vessels in front of him, the water jug and the woman. And he's about to give her life meaning. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Jesus doesn't even acknowledge her accusation. You're a Jew. What are you thinking, man? He stays on mission. Jesus uses his physical need to engage her on her spiritual need. Girl, you think I'm thirsty? You're the thirsty one here. And just so you're clear, 
I'm the only one who can meet your need, who can satisfy the soul thirst in you. If you knew the gift of God, you would ask him and he would give you living water. So what is the gift of God? It's the gift of the Holy Spirit. The living water received through salvation or deliverance and accompanying the new life of those who turn to Jesus to meet their needs and choose to follow him. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep, so where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. He has her attention, but she can't quite figure it out. He's offering something that sounds way too good to be true, but he doesn't even have a bucket, and he's acting superior to their patriarch, the well digger himself, Jacob. And so she's trying to figure out, like, what is going on here? She's curious. And she says to herself, this is where we all come when we have a need. This is where everybody comes to get water. This is what we do. Like, why is he questioning me? What is he offering? Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. In John 7, verses 37 through 39, Jesus is teaching at the Feast of Tabernacles, and this is what we read. On the last and most important day of this festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow deep from within him. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Living water, the Holy Spirit, is the internal fullness of the love of God, meeting our needs and overflowing to meet the needs of others through us. Living water is our life source of the abundant life that Jesus promises in John 10.10. He says, my purpose is to give you a full and satisfying life, the good life that Mark preached about a couple of weeks ago. Um, The woman still had her need, but so do we. Her life is an analogy of our own. Every day, we go to the well to meet our need. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, what is the need, and where am I going to get a fill? So I just have a few questions for us this morning. Is your need safety? Do you draw from the well of control, manipulation, strategizing, controlling people in situations so you're always two steps ahead, never out of control? Is your need financial security? 
Do you draw from the well of self-reliance, making sure you have enough? Protect the assets, emergency funds for your emergency funds? Is your need love? Do you draw from the well of unhealthy relationships? Being with somebody, anybody, is better than being with nobody. Any attention is better than no attention, as long as I'm not alone. Is your need acceptance? Do you draw from the well of conforming, people-pleasing, saying yes when you mean no, saying you're fine when you're not, giving up your voice to be an echo of someone else's? Is your need success? Do you draw from the well of self-promotion or self-improvement? One more title, one more award, one more degree, one more achievement. I want to be a big deal. Is your need purpose? Do you draw from the well of striving or proving or chasing after? You need justice. You want to make a difference, to serve, to solve, to rescue. Or is your need pleasure? Do you draw from the well of self-indulgence? Numbing, drugs, alcohol, pornography, Netflix, comfort food, coffee. Uh, you want to feel good. Is that really so bad? The need isn't bad. We were created for purpose, for love, to feel secure. It's how and who we use to meet the need that we need to be aware of. Because just like for the woman, um, the well will meet a temporary need, but you have to go back. It's just a temporary fill. Needs met for a moment, but then we're empty again. So back to the well, back to the well, back to the well, back to the well. It just becomes convenient to kind of camp out there. Maybe make your home near the well. But our need is so much greater than just getting it filled for temporary. Our soul is thirsty for something this world cannot offer. We were made to experience and live into something more. And Jesus offers us the same gift that he offered her, a well that will never run dry, a spring of living water that we do not need to camp out at or make our home near because its home is in us. The spirit of the living God lives within us, springing up fresh spiritual water that truly satisfies our soul's thirst and meets our need. When we are delivered through Christ to live the full and satisfying life, we stop looking for external ways to meet the emotional and physical and relational and spiritual needs that we have. We now look internally to the only one who can satisfy. And it is not ourselves. It is the Holy Spirit within us. When we are delivered from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, through faith in Jesus and a life of following him, it is God's gift to us, this well that never runs dry. So question for reflection. Where am I empty? 
What is my need? What is my well? Where do I go to get a fill? Where do you go? It's time for a moment of truth. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. She's here for it. She's in. He has said enough that she's no longer curious. She is like ready. But he says, go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five husbands, and the man you have now, he's not your husband. What you have said is true. So this is where it gets a little complicated. So often, this interchange is presented as this woman being this promiscuous, repeat adulterer who's now living in sin as an unmarried woman. But I just don't see it. And I, and I ask you to give me a moment to explain. First century laws and customs suggest that she did not have the agency to marry or to divorce. She was likely 12 to 15 years old when she got married the first time and probably to an older man. So I don't know. One possibility is that she's like the woman that the Sadducees talked to Jesus about who ends up marrying brother after brother and outliving them. Or was she infertile and so divorced because she couldn't produce a child? We don't know. John doesn't tell us, but we do know that men could divorce their wives for any reason. So I think it unlikely that she was unfaithful repeatedly, and yet men still wanted to marry her. She did not have the agency to choose a husband. She would have had to have been chosen five times. And in regards to living with a man that's not her husband, we automatically assume it's sexual. But the customs of that time would say that the men in a family line are responsible to care for the widows, are responsible to care for the single ladies in their home. Is it a brother? Is it a son? Is it a relative? We don't know. But what I would suggest to you is maybe she's not a victim. But maybe she's not the vixen that she's always been made out to be. And maybe that's not the point of this story at all. Her marital status has little to do with this interchange and everything to do with Jesus. When we focus on her, we miss the point. Jesus reveals her to herself. He is offering her living water, yes but he also offers her a full understanding of how he sees her. He wants her to know that he knows her. He knows her story. He knows her history with men and rejection and disappointment and loss and shame and sin. And he says, I see you, and I do not reject you. I give my life to you fully and freely, knowing exactly who you are. Again, she's at the well in the heat of the day. Five marriages ended by death or divorce or both, living at the mercy of another man not bound by marriage. 
And she is trying to hide her need. But he fully exposes it in the most gracious way. Truth is clearly spoken. And Jesus says, I know all of the good and all of the bad and all of the hard and all of the hurtful about you. And I want to redeem you. To be known and loved and forgiven by a gentle and merciful yet powerful God is the healing that her heart needed. And I would suggest it's the, the, the healing every human heart needs. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We Jews worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So one of the main religious conflicts between the Jews and the Samaritans is the true place of worship. The Samaritans believed that Moses had commissioned an altar at Mount Gerizim, and that was their mountain of blessing. That is where they went to truly worship God. And of course, the Jews are like, no, no, it's in Jerusalem. But Jesus doesn't even engage. He doesn't answer her question because he is not interested in winning a religious argument. He isn't interested in, in deciding which is the best place to worship. In this moment, he is intent on creating true worshipers and witnesses. And with this woman, he is intent on creating a true worshiper and a witness out of her. Worship is not about when or where or how. It is about who. Jesus says, it's about me and it's about you. An hour is coming and is now here. Jesus is referring to his crucifixion. He spent the time in the wilderness, tested and approved as evidenced by the baptism of John the Baptist. And then he sets out to accomplish the will of the Father. He sets out on a long obedience in the same direction, the direction of the cross. He's telling her that this argument about where true worship takes place is unnecessary because soon true worship will not be contained to any earthly location. It'll be contained within the human heart that is delivered through faith in Christ and chooses to follow him. When Jesus hung on the cross, it says in John 19, 14, one of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water flowed out. Jesus himself becomes the very fountain of life that allows us to be full up, to well up with living water. And he reveals himself. 
The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And Jesus said, I, the one speaking to you, I'm, I'm he. This is the first time in the Gospel of John that Jesus reveals his true identity. He reveals himself as the only one who could meet her need. He looked at this woman and saw her for who she really is, humanity, created in his image for his glory. And he came for her, and he comes for us. He came for sinners. He came for the lost, to free the captives, to heal the sick. You guys, when Jesus says, I am, heaven roars. When Jesus speaks his name, when we speak Jesus' name, things shift. And the powers of hell run for cover because people are going to be set free and eyes are going to open. And what he is communicating to her is your fears are going to fade and your hope is going to heal. There is joy in the name of Jesus. Strongholds are released at his name. And when Jesus speaks his truth and his reality into yours, it changes everything. It did for that woman, and it does for us. And in that moment, she forgets her need. She sets the jug down. She hears him say, who he is. His name has power. His identity has authority. And she is captivated by Christ. He's the one who was promised, the Messiah that was coming to meet her needs and all the needs of all the people of all the time, jugged down and Jesus lifted high. So you might be sitting there and thinking, that's great. Jesus was really nice and kind to this lady at the well. And you might wonder, would he treat me with the same kindness and honesty and honor as he did for that woman, if he knew the truth about me? So I want to tell you what he's looking for. What qualifies you on his checklist? He's looking for humanity. He's looking for those in his image that he can draw back into relationship with himself. So in case you're wondering, you check all of his boxes. He came for you. He died for you. He rose victorious for you. He is in heaven speaking life and love and peace and hope to the Father over you. Your gender does not disqualify you. Your race or ethnic heritage does not disqualify you. Your marital status does not disqualify you. Your past does not disqualify you. Your economic status, your balance in your bank account, your job, it does not disqualify you. There is nothing that can disqualify you from the love of Jesus because there's nothing you can do to qualify for it. It's all him. 
compelled by love and obedience to the Father, that he comes after you, he comes for you, he comes to rescue you and give you life and life to the full. He meets you and he meets me at our greatest need. And he's, he offers us living water. Water is the perfect picture of how God works in our lives to satisfy our thirsty souls. Water, when it is poured in, flows down and seeps into all the little hood and cracks and crevices and corners that we might not even know about. And it begins to fill and fill, and it fills up to overflowing. And there is no part of you that the love of God will not find. And God is not content with just a little, a little fill, a little taste, a little quenching. He is a generous God. And he wants to fill you to overflowing forever. That is his promise. So whatever your deepest hurt, your most despicable sin, your most damaged part, the living water of God's love and compassion will find it and will fill it and will heal it. In Psalm 23, um, the shepherd writes, You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and your love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. My cup overflows. Jesus gives us the model on how to love. Just then, when his disciples arrived, and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman, yet no one said, what do you want, or why are you talking to her? The disciples were hindered by that cultural appropriateness, the religious rules, and the political correctness of of the day. Their own bias and fears and prejudice and pride prevented them from seeing the beauty of this moment. They were witnessing death to life, despair to hope, pain to joy, empty to full, but they missed it because she's a woman, and they didn't know what to do with that. I love what Charles Spurgeon said about this very text in 1882 as he preached at the Metro Tabernacle in London. This is what he says. It was sufficiently offensive that the person with whom Jesus was conversing was a woman. My beloved sisters, you owe much to the gospel, for it is only by its agency that you are raised to your proper place. For what said the rabbis? Rather burn the sayings of the law than teach them to women. And again, let no man prolong conversation with a woman. Let no one converse with a woman in the streets, not even with his own wife. Women were thought to be unfit for profound religious instruction and altogether inferior beings. My sisters, we do not think that you are superior to us, though some of you perhaps fancy so, but we are right glad to own your equality and to know that in Christ Jesus there is neither male nor female. Jesus has lifted you up to your true place, side by side with man. Even the apostles were at first tainted with that horrible superstition which made them marvel 
that Jesus openly talked with a woman. He modeled what it looks like to love people beyond the lines, beyond the barriers. Jesus did not consider himself to be above anyone. He continually went low and humbled himself. And if we choose to follow him, we must do the same. Some of you may be aware of the controversy of the He Gets Us campaign that played during the Super Bowl. It was a commercial ad that was purchased um, to communicate the love of Jesus was their stated goal. And it depicted uh, many people washing the feet of others. And the others were um, kind of subtly communicated as would-be enemies or sinners, offensive, um, unworthy. And there's been significant controversy and backlash from the Christian community suggesting that Jesus would never have washed the feet of those people depicted in the ad, that he would not condone their lifestyle, so therefore he would not show the humility and kindness that washing of feet requires. But I disagree. I think if we read the account of Jesus again in his word, then we see a man who humbly washes the feet of his disciples. And we all look to Judas like, you know, yes, he washed Judas's feet and Judas was going to betray him with a kiss and give him a death sentence and make money off of it. But he also washed the feet of Peter who would deny him. And every other disciple, when it got hard and really scary, they all ran. Jesus' kindness leads to repentance. That's what we read in Romans. I wear it on a ring so I don't forget. Jesus' kindness is what leads to repentance. It is not repentance that earns Jesus' kindness. He would wash the feet of anyone and everyone. There's a young woman from Australia that has illustrated the humble love of Jesus in her foot washing series. You'll see several of these prints in the hallway near our church office, and I love them because each one is a fantastic reminder to us that love compelled Jesus not only to humbly wash our feet, but through his death and his resurrection, he washes our souls and fills us fresh. Well, after this beautiful encounter that the woman has with Jesus, she is set for ministry. So what does that look like? Then the woman left her water jar, went into town, and told the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they left the town and made their way to him. At the beginning of this story, the woman is alone, isolated, running from pain, self-inflicted, or at the hands of others, we don't know. But now we see her running into her purpose running to tell others about Jesus. Come and see. She was saying, he knows me. He loves me. He meets my every need. Come and see for yourself and get in on his goodness. Could it be him? 
you guys, I think it's him. I'm going to invite the band to come up and um, I just have a few final questions for us to reflect on um, this morning. Is Jesus actively working in your life in a way that you can invite people to come and see, to come and see his goodness? If he is, then ask yourself, who needs the invitation? Who is God's purpose for you to run to and tell about? If he's not, let me be the one to invite you to come and see Jesus. He sees you, and he knows you, and he knows your story, and he loves you, and he will not reject you. He wants to redeem you and deliver you from whatever it is that you're carrying around, that you're holding on to, that is heavy. And he wants to deliver you from the darkness and into the light, to replace your mourning with dancing, to give you beauty for ashes. And you guys, he will only go around for so long. And then love will compel him to come straight through the heart to where you are, to what that need is, your lack, your hurt, your shame. He is compelled by love to come after you, not to scold you and to shame you, to reject you, but to come face to face with who you are and for you to come face to face with him and who he is. Understanding that nothing about you changes anything about him and his love for you. He has come to meet your deepest need. If you only knew, you'd ask him. And he would give you the gift of God, the Holy Spirit, his presence, his peace. So as we take a moment and the band plays and proclaims and speaks the name of Jesus in this place and over every person and every need, every circumstance, ask God through his spirit to meet you where you are, to meet the need you have that he's the only one who can truly satisfy. Believe him for it. Believe you're worthy of his love. Believe he will do what he promises. He alone can quench the thirst of your soul. Will you bring your need to the well that never runs dry? We're